You can be seated. Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of us are familiar with those words. If we're familiar with them, though, chances are that we're most familiar with those words as they come to us from Jesus. They're some of his famous last words from the cross, of course. We're probably less familiar with the original setting of that cry in Psalm 22, where King David wrote it a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 22, 23, and 24. These psalms kind of form a trilogy, a nice neat package of psalms which uniquely point forward from a thousand years before to the coming of Jesus. And in God's good providence, we're coming to this part of the book of Psalms and our study of this great book uh, just as we're approaching Christmas time. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 have sometimes been referred to as the cross, the crook, and the crown. I think it's B.H. Carroll, a Southern Baptist pastor from the 1800s, who was the first to come up with those three C's. Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross. We'll see that today. Psalm 23, the psalm of the crook, which shows us God as shepherd a metaphor that Jesus used of himself in John chapter 10. And then Psalm 24 on Christmas morning, December 25th, we'll look at the Psalm of the Crown. It's about the King of Glory and his coming. And of course, the New Testament says just that about Jesus, that he is the King of Glory. Now, these messages won't be what many of us think of as typical Christmas messages, which narrowly focus on the birth of Jesus, the coming of God in the flesh. But Psalm 22, 23, and 24 give us a window into that long anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And they also show us something of why he came, why he was born, why he came to do what he came to do. And that really is the whole point of the Advent season, uh, to think through the anticipation of those who went before us, before Jesus came, to think through not just his birth, but why he came, what it means to rejoice in it, and to also anticipate his coming again. Psalm 22 is a bit lengthy. It's 31 verses. Let me start by reading the first 19 verses, and we'll look at the later verses as we work through the psalm a little bit more. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me, make faces at me. 
They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble's near. There's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Well, we could read more. We'll stop there for now. Last week we talked about different layers in Psalm 20. There are different layers there. What I meant by that was that there are different levels of meaning, different levels of application. And we have something similar in Psalm 22. There are layers here. There are levels of meaning. One is its original context, the experience of David. And another, another level, if we look through Psalm 22 like it's a telescope, we see Jesus on the other end a thousand years later. Many psalms, especially those written by David, are like this. Especially those written by David, which the New Testament looks back to. References or quotes. Get this. Psalm 22 is quoted or referenced in the New Testament 24 times. That's a lot. And a lot of them come right there at the scene of the crucifixion. Which, as anyone knows here in America, in any kind of remotely Christian culture whatsoever. The cross is the symbol for Christianity. So Psalm 22 falls into the heart of what we believe and what we trust, what we identify with. That's where we're going this morning from Psalm 22, Jesus and the New Testament. We'll see that it's a psalm of Jesus. And hence, we'll also see that it's a psalm for us. But that's not where we should begin. It's also a psalm of David. Notice that's the title of Psalm 22. Before you ever get to verse 1, it's to the choir master. He's writing it to someone in charge of the singing of the music of the people. According to the doe of the dawn, that was likely a certain tune. It was saying this should be sung to this specific tune. A psalm written by David. So notice on your sermon notes page, we'll see a psalm of David, a psalm of Jesus, a psalm for us, but we start with a psalm of David, just as it was written. Psalm 22 is one of these psalms we call lament psalms, psalms which are telling God of a plight, a problem. They're pouring out the heart to God, asking for help. 
They have other things about them than just calling out to God, sort of listing things that are wrong. But that's almost always where these kind of psalms start. Psalm 3 is like that. Psalm 13 was like that. We looked at those in previous weeks. And Psalm 22 begins with lamenting to God. Lamenting. Notice verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God hasn't forsaken him, but it feels as though God has forsaken him. He's repeatedly called out to God for help. And it not only seems that God hasn't answered these calls for help, but it seems like he's not even listening. Verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer And by night, but I find no rest. doesn't even seem like God hears, let alone is working on his behalf. A little further on in the psalm, David gets more specific about his suffering. Just look down in your Bibles. We won't read these verses again, but verse 6 tells us that he's hated. He's even hated like a worm is hated. I'm a worm, not a man. Notice worms don't even have faces. Oh, they're fun for six-year-old kids who want to gross out their sisters. And I suppose they do other things in the dirt that I'm unaware of. I'm sure they're useful for the ecosystem. But otherwise, none of us really like worms. David calls himself a worm here, at least in the eyes of those around him. He's mocked, verses 7 through 8 say. His enemies, look at verse 12, they are encircling him like angry bulls, the bulls of Bashan. Bashan was known for its strong bulls. They're like roaring lions, according to verse 13. In verse 16, the enemies are like a pack of wild dogs. And then he describes the inner experience of it all. Did you notice that in verse 14? These are sort of internal experiences, not external circumstances. He's poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart melting like wax. In verse 15, his strength is dried up like a piece of old pottery sitting out in the desert sun. Verse 15, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Not just thirsty, but dry, dry all over. Why? Why? Well, look at verse 16 at the end there. It's as if his enemies have already pierced his hands and his feet. They're already, according to verse 18, gambling for which garment that they're going to take as a souvenir when they finally capture him. It means that his capture is imminent. His enemies are planning what to do with his clothes. Now, especially if you've been a Christian for some time, and you're familiar with the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you're having trouble probably keeping your attention on David about right now, aren't you? It said, pierce his hands and feet. It said, they're gambling for his garments. Aren't these lines about Jesus, not David? 
Well, try to hold off on your thoughts about Jesus for just now. You see, as David wrote these words a thousand years before Christ, he wasn't probably consciously writing it about someone else. God used it so that it would be about someone else eventually, but we have to take it at face value in its own context. There's some figurative language here. There's some hyperbole, and that's okay. David didn't literally experience all this. He wasn't pierced through his hands. He wasn't pierced through his feet. His bones weren't out of joint. We don't know exactly when this could have been written, but we know that he had all kinds of suffering in his life, various seasons of suffering. And he describes it in such, well, poetic hyperbole. We would do the same today, right? Someone in anguish could say, I feel like my heart's going to explode. Or I feel like my brain is spinning around inside my head. No one means that literally. I felt as dry as dust on the inside. I felt like I couldn't even speak. So it's fair and legitimate to think of David writing all of Psalm 22 from his own experience, even with some hyperbole. But the hyperbole should not let us lessen our opinion of David's sufferings. Like it must not have been so bad because he was exaggerating. He was exaggerating because it was so bad. Again, we don't know when Psalm 22 was written and what circumstances surrounded it. It could have been at any number of times in David's life when he was on the run from Saul at the beginning of the story in 1 Samuel. It could have been as he was on the run from his son who's trying to take over his government at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And it could have been during any war with any surrounding enemy nation which are sprinkled out through 1 and 2 Samuel. Throughout his whole life, David had great suffering, probably greater suffering than you or I have have ever known. I know we think of David in his astounding riches. We think, must be nice. We think of David and his beautiful heart playing. We think of David and his cool, emo psalm writing. We think of David and his close walk with the Lord, that he was a man after God's own heart. And we think of David as one bad military general... But these are just the headlines of the Jerusalem Times. The stuff that's going on behind closed doors. The stuff that's going on from cave to cave when he's on the run is very, very heavy. And what does he do in the midst of that treacherous suffering? He talks to God about it. He tells God how he feels because God already knows. He pours his heart out to the Lord. And he's also recounting God's ways. He's recounting God's ways through it all. Notice the yet at verse 3. And then there's another yet at verse 9. I have these underlined in my Bible. I think maybe you could do the same and it would be useful. Notice the yet here is a contrast. Let's read those sections. Verse 3 he says, after his, after his lament to God about feeling like he hasn't heard, 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and they were rescued. They trusted in you, and they weren't put to shame. And then he goes back to a a round of lament in verse 6, until he gets to verse 9. Yet, again contrast, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust my mother's breaths. I've been trusting you since I was born. You've been the only God that I've had since, since I came out of the womb. Notice that he's not content to just lament. So he laments, but he fights the lament. He recounts what he knows. He's responding to himself almost. It's like he's playing both sides of the chessboard. He's taking what he knows about God and his ways because he doesn't just know his own suffering. He doesn't just know his feeling of abandonment. He doesn't just feel like he's alone, and that's all he knows, but he knows alongside that feeling of alone, loneliness, that that God is true, that God's word is right, that, that the Father's who've gone on long ago, have trusted him, and they weren't put to shame. He's taking what he knows about God, and he's buttressing it against his laments. So we could call it recounting here, rather than remembering. Sometimes the Psalms talk about remembering. Actually, the Old Testament and New talk about remembering being such an important thing for God's people. And no doubt, in its original context that would have been understood with its full rich meaning. But today, I think, in, in English anyway, remembering is pretty passive, right? So you're walking along, you're having a thought, you're going down a thought trail, and then something else comes in out of nowhere. Bam! You remember something. And then you'll either walk down that path or, or not, that thought path. Well... That's somewhat passive, and that's not what David's doing here. He's not saying, oh yeah, this thing hit me. He's taking time to actually rehearse or recount what he knows about God. It's discipline. It's proactive recounting. And he's also asking God for help through it all. Asking God for help. Notice verse 11 It's the first request. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Notice that in verse 1, he felt forsaken. He felt as if God hadn't been hearing. And yet, what's he doing? He's still calling out for help. He's asking God for help in verse 11. He's asking God for help again in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You're my help. Come quickly. Deliver my soul from the sword. Verse 20 says, My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He's asking God for help. And then he's also resolving to praise and trust this God. Like other lament psalms, This psalm ends with confidence. This psalm ends with praise. But it's not just easy praise. There's resolve. 
There's resolve praise, resolve trust. So notice verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. He calls on others to do that. He wants praise to spread. You don't get there easily, though. It's a fight. And notice there's been this cycle going on throughout Psalm 22. Have you you noticed that there's a progression, but it's not a neat progression? It starts with lament. It ends with praise. In the middle was at least one round of remembering or recounting what God has done, and then another round of lamenting before he recounts again and before he asks for help and before it finally leads to praise. You see, this lament, like the other laments of the Psalms, are so, so important for us. Because we do suffer. We do feel forsaken at times. We do wrestle with doubt and despair. And we have a great model for us in Psalm 22 and in the other lament psalms. Not one of complaint, but one of humble questions. It's not absolute disillusionment here or in the other lament psalms, but it is one of doubt and difficulty. It's not accusation that David is doing, but he's wrestling with acceptance. He's trying to apprehend the mystery of what he knows from God's word and and in history with his own present experience that it seems doesn't connect, isn't consistent. But he recognizes that there's mystery between his experience, his feelings, and God's ways, and his word, and he doesn't presume to understand it all. He seems to acknowledge that he might be misinterpreting things, misunderstanding things, but what God has said in his word, what God has done in history, he can nail down and depend on. So there's honesty, but it's, it's not unguarded, unhumble honesty. Notice, as we said already, that just that he keeps asking God shows that he still believes God. He's trusting even though he doesn't see. Because full full faithlessness gives up asking, gives up acknowledging, doesn't talk to God about the struggle. David's a great example for us as we wrestle through our own suffering. But is that it? Is Psalm 22 just a good example for us? Well, no, I already gave it away, and you probably already know the answer anyway. This psalm is quoted by Jesus, and Jesus wasn't just a good example for us when he was on the cross. Let's talk about the second thing in your notes, that this is a psalm of Jesus. It's a psalm of Jesus. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament which become clearer in the New Testament. Remember in Luke 24, after the resurrection, two men are walking down this road to Emmaus, and they know about the crucifixion, but they don't know about the resurrection. And this man, which we know is Jesus, starts walking alongside them, and he begins to speak to them about everything 
in the Old Testament that concerned him, that was about him. Wouldn't you love to have a tape recorder right there and to hear what he said on that five-mile walk into Emmaus? Well, we don't know what he said exactly, but, but you have to guess. You know, money is on the fact that Jesus mentioned Psalm 22, a psalm which gets quoted or referenced 24 times in the New Testament, especially at the cross. So in the psalm of Jesus, we can think about his mockery, his mockery. Look at Psalm 22, verse 7. It almost sounds like it comes from the Gospels. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me or faces at me. They wag their heads. Boy, this is an awful lot like Matthew 27, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Well, I'm sure it's just coincidence, so... Let's keep looking. Verse 8 of Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That sounds an awful lot like Matthew 27, verse 42. There the passers-by and religious leaders say, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. He was mocked. He was mocked by the crowd. He was mocked by the religious leaders. He was, of course, mocked profusely and painfully by the Roman soldiers. He was even mocked by one of the thieves being crucified next to him. And all the disciples fled. So he truly was surrounded by... Look at verse 16 of Psalm 22. He was encircled with a company of evildoers mocking him. We also see his torment in Psalm 22. Remember that Jesus was tormented before the cross, mingled with his humiliation. He was whipped, he was beaten. Well, Jesus' torment seems to be at least hinted at in verses 12 to 13. Psalm 22, many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me. They're like roaring lions ready to devour. Torment. And that torment, as we know, leads to crucifixion. Crucifixion. And we see crucifixion in Psalm 22. We see a description of what looks a lot like crucifixion. But get this, Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. Did you know that? We'll get to the crucifixion part in just a bit. But notice in verse 14, we start seeing things that sound like the description given to us about Jesus on the cross in the New Testament, that he was Verse 14, poured out like water. He was emptied of himself. His bones were out of joint. Yeah, David was out of joint, symbolically, you could say, right? But there is Jesus actually hanging from the cross. And it wouldn't be an uncommon thing for his bones to be out of joint. 
Verse 14, David said, my heart is melting like wax. Well, Jesus is literally experiencing something like this as he's being crucified. Crucifixion killed through asphyxiation. There was the inability to eventually to to breathe. And so it would feel like the, the pressure of hanging there was squeezing in, not just on his lungs, but but his heart as well, as his heart pumped, trying to get blood to the extremities, but it wouldn't happen. In verse 15, David says his strength is dried up. Boy, that's a fitting way of describing what happens in crucifixion, to say the least. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Jesus said, according to John 19, I thirst. Evildoers encircle me, verse 16. It's exactly what we see described in the gospel accounts about Jesus. They have pierced my hands and my feet, verse 16 says. Now this is a weird one. This is a weird one for David to say. Again, this is hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. And if you go into to battle, there are a lot of places they're going to get you with a sword. I don't think they usually go for hands and feet. But yet he says it. I think we should probably just take David at face value and think that, think that he's, again, symbolically or in a hyperbolic way, some exaggeration here describing how he feels and that he's almost done for. But boy, it's ironic, isn't it? Well, it's more than ironic. God was involved in David's writing and his describing his own experience in an exaggerated way that just so happened to be such a fitting way of describing some form of execution which wouldn't be invented for hundreds of years and which wouldn't come to be fulfilled in Jesus for a thousand. David said, I can count all my bones in verse 17. As Jesus hung there, no doubt because of his poverty and also because without clothes he hangs there on the cross. His bones are exposed. You can count the ribs, no doubt. They cast lots for my garments, David said in verse 18, implying that his doom was near. They were already making plans for him. Well, they literally did this in Matthew 27, 35 about Jesus. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. In case you think it's a nice, convenient Christian thing for Jesus to walk through this, sort of self-fulfilling what he saw in Psalm 22. Okay, now I'll say, I thirst. Okay, now I'll make sure they see my ribs. Okay, now I'll... I'll point out the fact that everyone's wagging their heads at me using the language of Psalm 22. That would be all very convenient, except for the fact that you can't get the guards to buy into that. The guards divide his garments and gamble on what they'll get. They don't even know Psalm 22, most likely. There's one more overlap between Psalm 22 and the crucifixion story. Notice how Psalm 22 ends, the last four words of the psalm, verse 31. The ESV says, he has done it. That could be translated, it is finished. It is finished. 
just what Jesus said, according to John 19.30. So most scholars agree that Jesus' last words, it is finished, were indeed the last words of Psalm 22. Crucifixion. But don't forget desertion, too is part of this psalm of Jesus. Remember verse 1, David said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 27, 46. Now why? Why did Jesus say that? I mean, it's one thing for David to feel it. It's another thing for the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to say that he feels or that he is forsaken by his father. Why? How was Jesus forsaken? Well, the short answer is we don't know. And that's fair to say. There are a lot of things in the Bible we just say, we know this, we know that, we don't know all of it. Here's what we do know. We know that Jesus was on the cross bearing sin and taking the punishment for our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 said that the one who knew no sin was perfectly righteous. He became sin or became like sin. He bore our sin for us that we might have his righteousness. So during those hours upon the cross when Jesus was bearing sin, the Father's pure holiness could not look upon him. Fellowship was broken. He was forsaken. And he was forsaken as part of the payment for sin. Because the effect of sin is not just death, but separation. Go back to the garden. The day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. And as soon as they ate of the tree, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. Death and separation. And Jesus is taking both of those for us on the cross. He's dying in our place. He's being forsaken for us. Desertion. But I think we can also think about resurrection from Psalm 22. Resurrection? Is there a resurrection in Psalm 22? Well, it's... It's not explicit, but it seems implied. There's this abrupt turn. Let me read verses 19 to 21 again. Here's David saying, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then here's the turn. You have rescued me from the horns of of the wild oxen. Now, no doubt in David writing Psalm 22, he's truncating a story. He's taking the sad part and the happy part and he's putting them together, but it makes for a pretty awkward transition here, doesn't it? Less so with the story of Jesus. Because the cry for deliverance, the cry for help, which you see, Verses 19, 20, and 21. The cry for saving my life. Give me life. The cry for a rescue. For Jesus was answered in the resurrection. He was rescued from the horns of that wild oxen, the devil. 
It's a psalm of Jesus. And thirdly, it's a psalm for us. It's a psalm for us. Psalm 22 tells us something about our suffering. It tells us how God deals with suffering, what he thinks of it, and how he approaches it. You see, we all suffer too. Let's just own that. And we all wonder at times if God is forsaken. Oh, I guess some have given up on that question, and they just assume that he's not there. And that's why it doesn't seem like he hears or answers. Well, this all tells us that something's not right in this world. Everything's broken, according to Bob Dylan and according to the Bible. So suffering and injustice are a reality in this world, and that's what David was feeling. That's what Jesus was experiencing. That's what you know from your own experience of others and your own doing yourself. You see, there's suffering and injustice in this world because there's sin in this world. And David knew this, that the sin isn't just out there. It's also in here. So by nature, we're separated from God, we could say. By nature, we've been, in a sense, rightly forsaken by God. He he doesn't owe it to us to hear us. He doesn't owe it to us to help us. But he does, and he has. He has a plan for restoration. And get this. Our God doesn't deal with suffering and injustice in this world from merely outside the story. His story is that he jumped into the story. What I mean is, the God of the Bible addresses human suffering by taking on human suffering himself. There is no God available to you out there on the God market Like this God, a God who not only cares about suffering and acknowledges that it's there and it stinks and it's hard and it's not the way it's supposed to be, but that this God has taken on suffering for us. Jesus came to die. That's why he was born. He came to die. He came to die specifically in our place. He died so that we could live. He was beaten so that we would have peace. He was bloodied so that we might be healed. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was despised so that we would be loved by the Father. He was forsaken so that we would be received. He suffered so that we might be comforted. He took on judgment so that we might be declared free. The results of Jesus' death and resurrection are shown to us at the end of Psalm 22. One is salvation. Salvation's in verse 24. God has not, does not, and in Jesus he shall not despise or aboard the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from those in need, those who truly have heard and cry to him. There's salvation in him. 
This is shown most clearly in Jesus. There are many salvations, M-I-N-I, all through the Bible, right? God's people at the Red Sea. God's people in the wilderness where God gives miraculous bread from heaven or water from a rock for them. Many salvations. But there's one true, final, eternal salvation. And we pray that you know that. We pray that you would do what verse 27 says, to see and to turn to him, to believe and to trust and to be saved, to put all your eggs into the salvation basket of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. We see salvation. We also see restoration. In Psalm 22, verse 26 and 27 It says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That's the poor. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations. What you see in this great psalm is both rich and poor. Israel, Judah, and all the nations. All the families, all the peoples of this world coming to him. David predicted global praise, global praise that you and I know and and experience if we're in Christ. We've been restored to what we've been made to do. What, What have we been made to do? Worship. Worship. Worship is sprinkled throughout the last half of this psalm. Look at verse 28 and 29. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And that's why the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Even the mighty of the earth will bow down before him before they go into the dust. They shall seek him and praise him. They shall bow and they shall worship him because he rules in righteousness and mercy. That's what we were made for. That's what Jesus came and he died for. That's where our hope lies. And then there's also propagation, we could say, in this psalm. Propagation. It ends on this note of propagation, first in the family and then beyond the family to others. It says, posterity shall serve him, verse 30. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Tell what he's done to your kids. Verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. A people. A people who are not the people. I'm of a people who are not the people in the Old Testament. That's the way, perhaps it's confusing to you, that's the way the Old Testament describes what will come in Jesus, that there will be a global movement of redemption, restoration, and worship to the Lord. You'll tell it to your kids, and one day your kids will tell it to a people like you and me. And of course, the New Testament picks up on that and says, and you keep telling. Keep telling your kids and keep telling others around you this thing's supposed to spread. What will they proclaim? Y'all remember those last four words? He has done it. Or it is finished. That's what we proclaim. It's finished. 
Has he forsaken me? No. He's done it. It is finished. Let me sum it up like this. David felt forsaken by God amidst terrible suffering. And he fought against his doubt and despair by recounting God's ways and his faithfulness in the past. But he also kept asking God for help. And eventually God answered. David, like the fathers before him, testified of God's faithfulness shown eventually. But in God's orchestration, David also pointed ahead a thousand years to the coming of the one who would bring the true victory, the final hope, the sure help, and the deepest deliverance. This Jesus, the true son of David, the righteous king, the king took on suffering and death in our place. He bore our sins upon the tree. And his suffering wasn't symbolic It wasn't hyperbole. It was true and real. He didn't just feel forsaken by God. He actually was forsaken by God because he was bearing our sin. But God rescued him. And on the third day, he rose. And now he lives forevermore. Therefore, what he said is trustworthy. He gave us good news. What he came to do And what he did, he did it to the full. And he said it was finished. And now he welcomes all to come to him, to be saved, to be reconciled, to join in worship, and to join him in his plan for spreading his glory in this world to kids and to anyone who will hear. So now when we feel forsaken as Christians, when we feel like he doesn't hear us, we can trust him. We got a lot to stand on, don't we? He answers prayer, even if in his timing. And his timing is perfect. His plan is sure. And one day, all suffering, all doubt, all despair will be wiped away completely for those who are his. It's not done yet. So we still grope after him and we still fight away our doubts our despair. And we do that by learning from from David's great model in Psalm 22, but also by seeing David's great savior in Psalm 22. We see the cross of Christ there. So no, he has not forsaken us. Jesus is proof of that. And Jesus himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, we, we want to know that more. We want to live like we believe it in our bones and in our worries and in our aims.